Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Dan Snow is a filmmaker, a television presenter, a best-selling author, and the ideal person to help us kick off our investigation into what the past can teach us about the future. I'm sitting down with him for a chat about the state of the world today, the state of the world tomorrow, and whether or not there's anything we can do about it. Welcome to Future Imperfect. How do you feel that your own perspective kind of impacts on how you talk about history? Jason, when I was 21, I think I knew everything. And uh, there was nothing I didn't know about history. And now the older I get, the more I think, yeah, my goodness me, it's also contingent on who we are and what's going on in our life. Because suddenly I read every history book and all I read is Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, climate breakdown. I, I'm just reading about, you know, contemporary issues. Even though I'm reading about the Medici or I'm reading about Chinese history recently, I, I just keep feeling, oh, yeah, that's exactly like, you know, Jeff Bezos at the moment, you know, and all, all the, you know, the privatization of our space endeavors and things like that. So I think it's, I'm hopeless. I'm the worst. I think I'm always putting myself and my, my world into the past whenever I read it. I did a really interesting pod the other day with a, a woman who was writing about working motherhood, you know, this extraordinary transformation history from sort of women who work and then they're sort of in the domestic sphere and then they go out to work and how and when that all occurs. And she was saying that her experience of living through lockdown and trying to be a working mother and homeschooling and things, even though she was absolutely, she studied this for years and wrote a prize-winning book, she said it's transformed her opinion on writing the history. So I think we are really important in the way that we think about the past, I think, surely. Yeah, I'd agree entirely. I think the now reflects how we interpret the past almost entirely. It's very difficult to put yourself in the position of somebody and, and remove knowledge. Now, I was looking at the Map of Mundi the other day and thinking, what an incredible artifact that is. And yeah, it was a, it was a tourist attraction apart from anything. You know, you, you, you've gone all the way to Hereford Cathedral. What else can you pay a, a penny to go and see? And the Map of Mundi is the summary of the, of the world with Jerusalem at the middle and heaven at the top. And it's almost a mind map. And I'm not sure that anybody really thought it was actually geographical as much as a sort of a reflection of how the world was seen at the time by many people in the West. And I wonder... When we look at Magna Carta, for example, and the things that run up to that, and we, we reflect on it, I think it's only four clauses of it that are actually relevant anymore. A lot of it was about fishing, um, which is fascinating when I read it. It's obsessed with fishing. <laughs> yeah, fish traps and, yeah. and religious things. Yes, yeah, exactly. yeah. But it's so hard to put ourselves in the minds of the people that were there fighting for what they saw. Not really, because it wasn't ordinary people's rights, was it? It was more about the barons can't be abused uh, and had their own armies than ordinary people. There was no consideration really for ordinary, quotes, people. But um, when you're presenting, when you're putting together your ideas for history, how do you start with them and how do you reflect on it? Do you write scripts or do you extemporize and, and as you're presenting, explore the idea? Well, well, so much, Jason, that's interesting in there. I think just on your first point about the Math Mundi and all that sort of stuff, I think 
isn't it interesting also how this year, suddenly with the pandemic, Black Lives Matter, um, awareness of violence towards women that we've all had here in the UK recently, and, and maybe around you know, big government versus little government. Oh, maybe big government's back because it's kind of useful when there's a giant pandemic on. And also, sorry, I keep thinking of the list, but also the re-emergence of like great power rivalry between China and the US, between arguably China, Russia and the US. Suddenly, those things that I, I wouldn't have been sensitive to if I'd written it when I was writing a book about the Battle of Quebec 10 years ago, suddenly I'm like, should I have talked about slavery more in this book? Like, it's mm. kind of weird. Or should I have talked about these, just your choice of adjectives? And it's it's so true. And when I go back and read history books written in the Edwardian period, they were like condemnatory of Henry I for like wearing stupid clothes and being a bit effeminate and possibly having sex with men. You know, like that was like yeah. absolutely devastating. Whereas we tend to probably go, wow, their treatment of women was truly remarkable in this period or their kind of use, just their embrace of violence. Like they're mm. just violence, a kind of practical everyday tool of government. That's something the Edwardians maybe were a bit more chilled about. So I think it's so interesting. Um, in terms of how I'm working at the moment, well, you know, like you, I've, I'm kind of really embracing and really, really enjoying this new world in which we're living around sort of digital content so now most of my work is online and it's either sort of podcasts or TV shows, but I don't write scripts like I used to because I think writing scripts in the old days, there were a lot of gatekeepers, certainly when I worked at the BBC, and there'd be levels of command. They don't want to see a script because they want to make sure you weren't going to embarrass them or the BBC or, you know, and sometimes that was absolutely right. They had a very high standard of factual accuracy at the BBC, which was great and remains, particularly in this fake news environment that we're in now, I think really important. But a lot of it was also just around everyone wanted to chip in with ideas. And I think you've moved into movie mm. making, and I'm sure you're very much cutting a different path. But, you know, traditionally within movies, there were these, you know, hugely bureaucratic processes, scripts went in one end and came out the other about something completely different virtually. So I'm moving away from scripts now and trying to keep it a lot fresher. And I know from your online work that I've watched, it's, you know, you're, you're a big believer in freshness. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and I think, why not? You know, like I love now just going out and I was out kayaking the other day out here off my house. We went out to Hearst Castle, which I've seen Henry VIII's castles where it's sadly undermined by time and tide and it's collapsing into the solar. And it was just like, right, no script. It was the day after the collapse happened. Let's get out there. It was... You've got your bullet points, the things you want to cover. Yeah. You, you know, in that way, I'd be really interested actually how you work because you come from a gaming world where you have to storyboard it. But, but you know, I had my bullet points, and then I thought the audience want to hear freshness. You know, it's mm. like as long as you're delivering that content, and you've always got what we call in the industry voiceover for your listeners. That's when you're watching pictures, and and it's the presenter's voice just kind of mysteriously appears rather than a piece to camera where you can see them talking. The voiceover is the bit where they add their voice to pictures later. And you can put a lot of the heavy content in there if you want. Well, then, uh, don't worry, in 1542, uh, this happened. So if you don't remember everything you want to say on location, that's fine. Because I believe the bit that are interesting on location and stuff I see you do is, you know, my sword arm is just absolutely exhausted. It just shows, you know, this is, my horse is behaving this certain way. And so I was out there talking about the Solent, the tides, oh, you know, here I am, my kayak. That's the stuff you can't replicate. And it's also the stuff it's hard to script because... You want to talk about the tides. Well, if you go out the wrong time of day, the tide is going from left to right, not right to left. So I, I was in meetings when I was a kid broadcaster at the BBC and they were like, you know, make sure you mention here about the big crowds of people that go to this shrine every week. And you're like, well, hang on, we're not going to be there at a weekend. There's going to be no people. It's just like, leave it up to us. Leave it up to your field agents to work that out on the day. You know, and there were these people in the office didn't want to give too much power to people going out. But now I'm completely on the other side. I'm much more swashbuckling, I believe, in getting out there, finding out what the story is, having your facts, having your bullet points in your ammo case, but using them as and when the situation, and, and let the pictures and the, the action kind of tell the story and carry the narrative. I'd agree with you entirely. I think authenticity of voice and your immediate response, you go somewhere and you might have read about it, but when you go there and experience it, it might bring out a whole different area of thought for you. I mean, there's a, there's a story I tell in one of the things about um, jousting, closing my visor, and then a fly flying into my helmet yeah. and buzzing around. And for me, when it was happening, it was a bit distracting. And then afterwards, I thought, that must have happened in history. But nobody would ever write yeah. about it. It's a very personal experience. And it's funny, but also distracting. And you know, potentially could be lethal, that kind of small moment. But it's the sort of thing, it's one of the reasons why I love the horses and I like actually trying things out is – 
personal experience is quite rare. I mean, I love my book history and I love the, the whole academic side of it and the studying old documents and things, but they are one perspective on history and often written from a clever perspective or with a view to the legacy you're going to leave behind when you write the book, as opposed to complaining about yeah, the quality of the copper that's just been sent to you because it's rubbish and some of those early Mesopotamian tablets are ordinary lives. And it's something I'm fascinated by. King, kings and emperors are all wonderful, but what, what are ordinary people's lives like and how did they brush their teeth? How did they make fire? What did they do to get up in the morning like we all do? You know, how did people wash? Because hot water is a, is a rare and expensive thing. So you've got to be washing in cold water. A lot of the time. It's not very nice, to be honest. Jason, every time I have it, this is what it is to be a weird historian. Listen, <laughs> uh, like we're history, certainly history fans, like, you know, like I am, but anyone listening to this, this is what it is. Like, every time I'm in a hot shower, I think, this is a bloody miracle. Yes. I'm in a house, I'm not even on the ground floor, and there's a system that pumps hot water onto me and changes my day every time I have a shower. Like, it, yes. It's like essential to well being. And it's like, that's historically speaking, that's a kind of miracle. You know, only the kings and emperors would have had that, you know, a thousand years ago. Um, it is, it's a marvel, isn't it? But I think, Jason, you're in a wonderful position because you're answerable to no one. You've built this empire by yourself. You don't have to worry about anyone. There are, there are no gatekeepers. There's no one who you're trying to impress. And I think what's great about you go, this is what I'm interested in. I suspect other people are going to be interested in it too. And it is the, it's the bits of, I mean, the fly in the, the visor is great fun. And, and you know, people are always really rude about TV history. And nowadays we'd call it, I don't know, on, online video history. And because one of the things you have to do, as everyone who's watched TV shows knows, as a presenter, you've got to go and, like, you know, try and row the Viking ship or you try and shovel coal into the firebox of a 19th century train. But I can honestly say, I can honestly say, I feel it's been a great privilege for me to do those things. And it has made me, if and when I ever did want to return to try and being a proper historian, it, is, it will have made me a much, much better historian. Because there are certain things that only become very clear, and they become instantly clear. Instant, it's like standing on the deck of a ship and getting seasick. Like, oh, I'm now seasick and everything has changed. Like, I just want to... <laughs> or, or actually, something I experienced the other day, I had my first kind of adult chronic pain thing you know I had a condition a little thing thank goodness got fixed but for a couple of weeks I was in pain constantly and I thought this is the shittest experience of my life and if someone walked up to me now and offered me two million pounds if I could have this pain for another year or 10 years I would immediately say no like it would be a no-brainer and you know as you know so well so many people in the past decision makers uh, people who, who changed the course of history they would have been living with chronic pain or, or with bereavement, like savage bereavement issues, kids dying, plague, who knows. And that's something that I just don't see in books. I just don't see that. Well, well you know, yeah, everyone's like, well, it's fascinating. Why did, why did that king decide to do that? Uh, it makes no sense. Perhaps it was because of this. It's like, no, 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 no. What, what if it wasn't because of that? What if he was like James II? not putting up much of a fight against William III when he landed in 1688. What if it's because James II had these chronic nosebleeds, the weather was terrible, it felt kind of apocalyptic, and he just completely, as we all do every day, he just lost his morale. And there's no deep statute law or texts or kind of 17th century philosophy that explains it. It's just he had an absolute shocker <laughs> and collapsed, as you and I know. Well, you mm. probably haven't, but I certainly yeah. have. And, and I think I think that stuff is so... I mean, I learned so much uh, sailing this Viking boat. You, I mean, I, I'm sure you've done it, but if you haven't... It's no, I haven't yet. Yeah, no, there's something I really want to do, yeah. Right, because it's right in your yeah. ballpark. Ross Kilda, and we left Ross Kilda, and we sailed north, and we were going up Jutland, and we were eating the stuff and we were sailing the ship and and then the weather like and also the weather for he, he said look we haven't got google maps or anything we haven't got net charts but you know where sweden is it's there you know where denmark because look at the clouds you just you just know you look at them the clouds are completely different over land even though you can't see the land he goes the baltic is a very good place to learn how to sail and it's kind of safe and then we ran in up the beach we had a problem with something holding our rudder to the side of the ship turns out you need a, a sapling silver birch tree and you stick it through and then you use the roots to grab like tie the roots around 
the steering oar and then the tree then you you bring it through a hole in the hull and that lashes it to the hull basically and you, then you have a steering oar and we went into a, a supermarket car park and chopped a tree down we chopped with those you know in the supermarkets you always got those little yeah they always plant those to try and make yeah. the community happy yeah. and we asked permission and then we chopped the trees down and we just carried it off with us and you just thought my god every single thing on this boat as long as you've got some iron ingots, like some, and you, again, you know better than I do, but you, you need a bit of iron around, so mm. you can take that as ballast. But as long as you've got that, wherever you stop, you can make fire, you can do blacksmithing, and you can basically make that boat again. If you've got wood, you've got the techniques, you, you can go, oh, well, you know, we have to replace 10, 12, 40 planks. That's how you can do that. And being out with them and experiencing that was, I feel, knowledge that you could not gain from a book. Yeah, it's, the, it's the, the knowledge. I mean, I think one of the things that we often forget is the incredible adaptability of the human mind to solve problems if you really have to. You know, you're there, you're stuck, you've got a plank that's gone on your boat. Okay, we'll fix it, lads. You know, you have no alternative. You can't phone anybody and ask for rescue. That Nobody's going to come. There's no admin either. I often feel like the world is controlled by bits of paper that allow us to travel from X place to Y place and we've got to get permission for this and this is the way it's done but back in those days it was we have a boat we have a bunch of brawny lads and we have weapons because that's an important part of it who's going to stop us only somebody who has more brawny lads and weapons because we're going over there to explore and the sort of nature of exploring is that they might have to fight and because death was ever present you know child mortality was awful and you would be killing animals to eat them um, even if you didn't enjoy it, you would be doing that. So, so the idea of, of, of death and life was, was very different than it is now. I mean, we go into, and I'm guilty of this as well, but, you know, death for modern people is, for most people in the West anyway, is, is very removed mostly, not all the time, but is, is largely quite removed from us. Whereas earlier periods, medieval period in particular, it was very immediate and very apparent. And, and as you say, I mean, Henry VIII had that separating wound for decades that stank. Um, And, you know, he's a powerful king, an export star by the standards of the time, tall, very handsome, incredibly wealthy, decided to be in charge of his own church. So he'd even got that on his side. And there was nothing he could do about the pain and the stench of his leg. And he would have been completely aware of it hurting and distracting him at every moment even in the most intimate moments of his life he's going to be in pain and you know i i lived with for two weeks lived with tooth pain and quite frankly it was extraordinarily debilitating yeah and it was like great i can finally and it was such a relief psychologically as well as physically to get rid of it but imagine being that all-powerful king who can't get rid of that pain at all and you can even see the cutout in the royal armories on his armor there's a piece missing in one of his greaves, which is where they supposed the separating wound was. But imagine that just as a psychological impact on you, let alone the stench that would have been coming from that kind of wound. Yeah, amazing it wasn't worse, to be honest. Uh, well, agree. I agree. I completely agree with that. And I'm very struck as well by your comment. The thing I struggle with, with history about death and our relationship to it. You know, I've been very, very privileged in my life, and I've been absolutely incredibly lucky that the only people I know who have died, I'm 42 years old, the only people I know who have died have been really old, you know, intimate to me, the close close family, and and it's been a great loss, but, but you know, I'm, I'm very, very lucky. And I know that's perhaps unusual even today, but it would have been unheard of in, in, mm. in the 15th century. And I don't know whether sometimes there, you read about these lives. Now, of course, you're reading about the kind of exceptional lives because... That's the ones you're. That's why you're reading them, but they just lived with a certain velocity, a certain energy that you makes you think maybe they weren't worried about their pension. We we like go, oh, it's worth putting five years in at this company because you might get you know. But, but maybe they go, well, I don't know if I'm be alive in five years' time. So mm. maybe there was a a pace to their life that we think we live fast paced today. But I mean, some of these characters that you read about were getting in scrapes and and i mean i just did a podcast on cellini the renaissance artist i mean he's lived harder than any rock star today any <laughs> soldier any you know it, it, there must have been a sense that you know this could all end tomorrow frankly i've buried my siblings i've buried my kids i've buried my friends was there a kind of a just a who kept let's live for the day kind of spirit among so many of the people that you study particularly in, in your field i think very likely actually i think the the idea that 
disease, death, you know, violent death often was was around the corner. And let's face it, if you don't have a police are a fairly recent invention. I mean, you you know, you you had somebody murdered. There's a hue and cry and there's all these sort of. But if you can get away, the communication is only as fast as a fast horse. And if somebody is baddie on a fast horse, they're ahead anyway. And can you ever find them? But I, I agree. I think there's a certain fatalistic approach to it, which is I'm just going to go off and have adventures. And I wonder whether that's a Viking thing, whether in fact it's not about rape and pillage and thievery. It's just about, come on, lads, let's go and do something interesting with our lives and let's sail in that direction and see what adventures we can have. And sometimes those adventures turn violent and pillage and, and, and all sorts of bad things. But sometimes they discovered whole continents. Yeah, I was reading about Polynesians the other day. So you know, as well as the Vikings, I think the most remarkable maritime culture in our history. And the Polynesians, there was a sense that they weren't chased out of their homelands or by like a lack of material resources. Or you know, there was an idea that the Vikings there was sort of there was a bit of a population explosion, maybe not enough arable land, and that there were those kind of reasons. But reading about the Polynesians, it just did seem to be particularly young men, but young people going, no, let's 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 live a life less ordinary. Let's try and make mm. a name for ourselves and go beyond the horizon. And I can't think that's right. And I was reading about 18th century, again, we're in 18th century, which is, you know, we think about press gangs and the Navy was so hard and it was rum, sodomy and the lash. And and actually there was enormous amounts of volunteering for the Navy mm. in, the, in the 18th century. And I think lots of people like a young Captain Cook, like, well, James Cook, who then became Captain Cook, he had a life on the colliers of Eastern England going from Newcastle, London. And he, he chose to join the Navy. He volunteered. And I think it was the path of a life of adventure and potentially financial gain as well. But I mean, life tied to a small holding in early modern or medieval England would have been pretty grim and never traveling 30 miles from where you were born. I mean, like, I think swapping that for adventure and, you know, potential, well, great risk, I think would have made sense. Yeah. And and also, you know, the, the power of actually being fed as well, because, you know, in, in our yeah. immediate society, you know, we can always go down, or we can't always, but you know, at the moment we can go down to the supermarket and get food at the drop of a hat. And many people don't have any food in their dwelling. They know they're going to go somewhere for the next meal. Whereas back then you had to grow your food or buy it from the local area or and it might not be available. You might be hungry. And I think it's easy to underestimate the value of you'll be fed three square meals a day in the army. Yes, you'll be treated in a rough way, but you'll actually have adventures and you'll be fed. And that's incredibly compelling to most young men. Young women obviously weren't invited, but but for the young men being told, yeah, your alternative is to do what your dad has done, which is follow this plough backwards and forwards and the asses of these oxen backwards and forwards, or risk everything, your life included, but who cares because you're young and nobody thinks they're going to die. And you can have adventures in far off lands and possibly earn riches and meet strange people. I mean, if you think about it from that perspective, I'm surprised they even needed press gangs. I'm surprised they they actually ever needed to force people into the boats. It's fascinating, fascinating period. And then never leaving the ship, unfortunately, for quite a long time. That doesn't sound so good either. (laughs) What happened to the adventures? That'll come in a few years. Really? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean the idea of um Napoleonic recruiting sergeants as well and the the idea of the king's shilling and then the king's shilling being taken off you for all your equipment. I always thought it was strange, but I can understand it from their perspective and as historians or amateur historians in my case, I think you've got to try to put yourself in their position and understand the world as best you can, not from your own perspective of hot running water, easily available food perfect communications, an ability to speak to anybody with a magic box pretty much anywhere in the world simultaneously. These are things that were literally fantasy or impossible to even conceive of not that long ago. Yeah. And the hardest one, of course, is the first, well, not whatever, the hardest one for many people is First World War infantry. You know, the idea that these young men climbed out of those trenches and it wasn't just a fear of being shot by their own sergeant it was seems to be that they were willing participants in those attacks that we now know had very little chance of success uh, and many of them were killed shot machine gunned and and blown to pieces by shrapnel and left to dangle on the barbed wire and, and it's you know i've been at the center of a few internet storms and most of them very deserved but the one i was most interested by was when i tried to just write 
about what motivated those First World War soldiers and the fact that many of them enjoyed, many of them, not all of them, some, you know, many of the millions of people who served kind of enjoyed their experiences in the First World War. And as you say, there was food, there were long periods out of the trenches, uh, there were long periods of being behind the lines and, and the camaraderie, the sexual opportunities, the travel, the, the money, you're making money. Some of the risks didn't seem quite as severe as they do now because being in industrial communities, being in a mining community in 1910, you'd have been used to catastrophic loss of life mm. in the most appalling circumstances imaginable, buried underground, you know, all that stuff, explosions of gases. So there are a whole bunch of reasons why, for us, the choices and, and the experiences of that generation just seem like, you know, inexplicable. But at the time, as you so rightly say, that it, you know, these things make sense. It, it was a shocking experience for many, many of them who lived with debilitating physical and, and mental uh, wounds for the rest of their lives. But for many people, they could have got away with it. If they're in the right place at the right time, war could have been perhaps even enjoyable. Mm. I mean, it's interesting to brought up the idea of what we understand now as PTSD and the long-term mental effects of combat. And I always wonder when you look back through the historical record, do we see potential examples of exactly those phenomena, but not understood? You know, the Battle of Towton, people slaughtering each other in the in the thousands by hand, you know, literally seeing somebody there and smashing their face in with a hammer and doing that repeatedly, surely that would have generated just as much PTSD in those people. And can we tease that out of the historical record at all? What happened to these people afterwards? Did they become travelling vagabonds? Presumably there was a certain amount of suicide afterwards, you know, people that couldn't cope with it and, and all the things that would manifest and we would understand more today back in the old days. I mean, did the ancient Greeks suffer from PTSD? Those phalanxes that they had and yeah. people being stabbed to death or crushed or just doesn't bear thinking about and it's history filled with people with these problems i think probably the answer is yes but we just don't know about it very much yeah there was a great professor at my university who sort of said was it worse to drag a pike in the 30 years war when armies were just ripped apart by starvation and typhus and dysentery or was it worse to be a british german serviceman in the first world war and, and some you know you, you start to sort of crunch the numbers and, and obviously there was something unique about the first world war because of the kind of industrialized slaughter the randomness of death potentially the sort mm -hmm. of you know you could like it's younger storm of steel he's behind the lines and suddenly his whole platoon is just wiped out by a stray british shell and it's that i think that nature of the kind of randomness arbitrariness no safe areas were within reason uh, i think that must have been particularly weird and, and must have discombobulated people but yeah watching your mates cough their guts out and and you know, bleeding out in any of these conflicts and, and with casualty rates per capita far higher than the Battle of the Somme. You know, not unusual to armies to lose half their strength in battles that you'll have covered and mm. I, I was, you know, I've looked at. And, and so I agree. The only, I'm really, it's funny you said that. I'm quite interested. And if anyone listens to this and wants to send me any examples, I love raking through early sources and for any reference of PTSD, that there are some from the Battle of Trafalgar. The Napoleonic Wars, so the early days of Bethlehem Hospital, which gave its name to sort of Bedlam, the expression Bedlam. Mm. Uh, so many of its early inmates, or early recorded inmates, like 19th century visitors would say, oh, you know, quite obviously there's a few people in here from the, from the French wars. And it's like, well, obvi obviously that's fascinating. You know, so there were absolutely former servicemen who were at Trafalgar, Waterloo, elsewhere, whose, whose minds had just been terribly, terribly damaged by what they'd seen. Can you imagine the gun deck of a, of a, of a, of a ship in that period? You know, cannonballs coming through, supersonic splinters, cartwheeling around, razor sharp, ripping people in half, ripping people open. Decks painted red so you wouldn't notice the amount of blood on the deck. I mean, I defy anyone to think that was somehow better or nicer than the industrial warfare mm. of the 20th century. So I think definitely... It's an area that I'm totally fascinated by. But as you say, anyone who who, who saw the bridge of dead at Towton across that river, mm. uh, you, you, they must have they must have been changed, surely. Uh, you, you would think so. You would think, because as human beings, we haven't changed that much. Our psychology is largely the same. You know, we, we have different educational standards and probably different expectations of what, what our lives should be. But, but even so, that, that river, that beck running red with blood, is just such a strong, horrible image. Vast numbers of men 
on both sides. And one of those horrible brother on brother battles where nobody is kind of wanting to give up and everybody is just willing to pile into the slaughter. It's absolutely, absolutely awful. But I, but I wonder whether in the future, so one of the things I sometimes speculate on is what will we be looking back at as humanity in 500 years onto today's situation? What will, what will we see about today that we think of as normal? that will seem really extraordinary to them. And one of the examples, there's a couple of examples just to kind of kick off this thought, is I used to drive along the Foss Way to get to and from Oxford. And occasionally, I was driving along there in a little mini, my first car, very, very pleased to have that, and thinking there must have been Roman soldiers walking along here a few thousand years ago. I wonder if any of them were thinking, what will be here in a thousand years' time? What will it be here in 2,000 years' time? And here's me 2,000 years later, thinking, hello, Roman soldier, I wonder if you're thinking about me. And then I thought, I wonder if the Foss Way will still be there in some way in another 2,000 years. And then looking back at today, how will, how will historians look at you know, Brexit as a, as a major issue, potentially look at the um, American elections and the all sorts of complexities that are going on in, in politics in the world? information storm, fake news, all of this is going to be seen in some kind of context. I always wonder what that context will be and how they will describe us. Are you know, are we the new dark ages? Uh, I don't know. Uh, first of all, I know I'm among friends when people say I was driving on the Fosway rather than the A303. That's how, how we should refer to our modern road network. <laughs> by the Roman. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I think that, that is the most interesting question, isn't it? I mean, I can't help thinking, well, first of all, in 500 years' time, I don't think anybody will remember Donald Trump or Boris Johnson or, well, hopefully not President Xi or Vladimir Putin, short of a catastrophic nuclear interstate war that sees a sort of discontinuity of life on Earth. I hope they, these kind of political leaders come and go. I think it's going to be, of course, the internet and technology, isn't it? This This kind of transformation in how we communicate with each other and do business and do everything. Um, now into, you know, it's now with even areas that 15 years ago we thought were probably pretty safe, like sex and, and dating and finding partners. Now the internet dominates that space as well. Who, who knew? And it may come to dominate medicine, for example, in, in the next few years. You know, it's even areas that we don't know yet. I think that's something that they will be thinking about. I can't help thinking that they will find the climate breakdown fascinating. I mean, there's guys like me who sort of make all the right noises about climate, but I hop on planes left, right and centre and I, I eat beef and I, you know, I've bought an electric car, but I'm I'm not out there with Greta Thunberg on the streets, even though I know that this is a potentially existential catastrophe for us all. They might find that a bit weird. They might find that, like those generations sort of knew it was coming and then they, and but you know, they did bits and bobs around the edges, but they didn't go on a kind of wartime footing until it was too late or... So I think that that's going to be something that's really interesting for people to watch as, as we attempt to kind of decarbonize our economies and whether that happens soon enough. Um, and I think the things that we're able to do to our bodies, right? Um, mm. The science that, you know, we were able to, you know, we're having these amazing debates at the moment of furious screaming fights about biological sex and gender. Well, And they're kind of partly coming about because we have developed the technology to like change many of the biological characteristics from one sex to another you know that's and that's only going to increase you know when when's the clever pill coming out you know when's the pill that's going to upgrade our memories or upgrade you know upgrade our systems really and i think 
so that kind of biochemical side of it as well, I think, is hugely important. And then space. I think space. When Neil Armstrong died, I thought he'd he's a good chance he's the only person from the 20th century who'll be remembered in a thousand years' time. That's my, that's really interesting because he was first man. Yeah, because we 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 find you know, Mao and Stalin and Hitler and Churchill and everyone else. You know who today has heard of Charles V or Montezuma? Like, I mean, not many. Like those political leaders are not that important. Even the even not the genocidal mass murdering ones. And I suspect it's if you look back, it's the artists and the scientists and the explorer. I mean, I'm just this is me off the top of my head, but I, I, I think you're more likely to remember. Well, depending on artistic taste, who knows? Maybe Mick Jack, maybe the Beatles still being played in a thousand years' time. Maybe like, you know, Beethoven, maybe they'll still be, you know, but we can't account for taste, so I can't answer that. But I do think that we're going to be living on various different celestial objects by that point. And therefore, the first man to land on one of them, that's a big, he'll he'll get a fair bit of attention, I think, wherever we go in the universe. So, yeah. Well, I was also thinking about yeah, you know, the, the, all the wonderful stuff that that various of the space agencies are doing and exploring the planets and landing, you know, uh, rovers on Mars recently, and how incredibly detailed those images are, and and how we're slowly building up tiny bits of detritus on Mars. And I was thinking, just like today, some religions build quite complex buildings around a sort of a, a key rock or a special place for for their religion or their, you know, their world belief. I wonder if in, I don't know, 200 years, I think it's very likely actually that where one of those rovers is right now will be the centre of a kind of grand Mars exploration museum and there'll be a dome over it and and the patch of Mars that's on it, complete with the tracks, is going to be visible to visitors, you know, as, as a sort of pristine piece of Mars real estate. And there's going to be a huge Mars city around it. And it's just going to be one of those things that Mars school kids go to visit. And this is, you know, here's one of the robots and there's another one somewhere else. And it, yeah. it just fascinates me that that might happen in the future. Well, yeah, like colonial uh, Jamestown in, in the US yeah. or yeah, in, um, in Canada where my mum's from and, you know, Fort York at the heart of Toronto is this. Now it's under an underpass and it's kind of, but it is, you know, there is a... 18th century fort there which is you know which was the beginning of it all well sorry the beginning of european settlement the area so i i I completely agree and in fact there's a great bit on the archaeology of the moon there's a lot of stuff on the moon you should check it out you know there's a there's a moon buggy there's the apollo 11 uh well there's lots of bits of apollo 11 there you know the flag for example so the the archae the the heritage of mars and the moon is going to be super interesting i agree yeah and i i just i just love the idea that one you know one day some school kids going to be going, Mom, this is boring. I've read about this at school. And then they're going on to some other exploration. And for me, I found as I've got older, history has become more interesting or rather shifted. I've, I've always been interested in knights and castles and dinosaurs. I don't know why those are sort of big things in, in my life, but in quite a lot of other people's lives. But also the sort of human side of it has expanded. And, and I've also, I reflect on what it might have been like to be there. And then I sometimes through my computer games, which often examine game-playing futures and things like that. I, I always sort of, what if the future? And um, well, is, there, is there a period in history that you would love to revisit now uh, to sort of solve a puzzle or explain something that still bugs you? I mean, there are sort of classic moments in history, I suppose, but I've always wanted to go back to have a look at a, a major battle to see whether battles are really fought the way we think they were fought. Oh, no, of course. But first of all, I just love your point about the kid going on the school trip. The idea of going on a school trip on the moon to look at the descent stage of the Apollo lunar, the, the lander, which is still there. It's like, you know, the sort of spidery looking bit. Yeah. And, it's st- and, and the kid's like, oh, come on, that's so boring. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> um, moon school trips. So, yeah, I, of course, I battles are... Ever since I read John Keegan, you know, the, the, the kind of trying to work out, and you've spent a career doing this, well, what, do, what, do, what does that mean? Like, what does charge into a line of infantry who then gave way? And I read about, in the period I love is the 18th century, and you read about the Battle of Bladensburg or outside Washington, D.C., when the Brits take Washington. And it just seems like the Redcoats kind of just marched towards lines of U.S. infantry and they exchanged volleys and then the U.S. ran away. But, like, what's the process by which they did that? You know, and, mm. and, in the, and then the First World War, an interesting historian said to me the other day, it's interesting, he thinks there was this kind of unwritten rule that you'd go over the top 
you would do your best until the officers got killed. And then when the officers were killed, you lay down and waited for dark. And it was then acceptable. The NCOs would then get you back in your trench. They go, right, lads, come on, back we go. We had to go. Let's go back. So as long as your junior, like, as long as the kind of keen 19-year-old from Harrow was up at the front <laughs> going, go on, lads, come on, we might get through the barbed wire here. Let's go. You had to sort of go, right, come on, let's follow him and let's do our best. The minute he got killed and the captain and the major, you were allowed to just go, right, well, this hasn't worked. Okay. <laughs> Basically. So, and I, I think that the kind of, I love the mechanics by which, and you know, in your period, what's it mean when one battle, you know, that expression in the medieval period, like a battle of troops, like March and like a battle of Tewkesbury, we're talking on the anniversary of the battle of Tewkesbury. And then how long did that last? How long would two bodies of infantry at push of pike, as they say in the later century, you know, like properly at each other's shield wall, knocking each other to bits, pushing, shoving. Was there a clever rotation system that was bringing fresh blood into the front line, like I've seen it argued in the Roman period? Or or did it just like, or or scared or a rumour went up, did the whole thing just disintegrate? Like, I, I agree. I'm, I would just love, I don't feel I know that. And I've spent my life reading and mm. and sort of trying to look into this. And I still don't feel I know what that, what did Shooksbury actually look like? Yeah. I mean, how intense was the actual fighting? Because if you think about yeah. professional fighters today, what, a two and a half minute round and yeah. they then need yeah. to rest? not wearing anything particularly, you know, they're, they're stripped down, they're super fit, their nutrition is studied, they're fed, yeah. yeah, they're being battered around, but they're properly fighting. If you're wearing armour and you're not fit and you've got dysentery, your efficiency is going to be dramatically yeah. reduced. And even if you're standing opposite somebody who's got a halberd and he's having a swing at you, you're having a swing at him, are you even going to put much strength into it? Or yeah, are you just sort of all going to stand there and kind of meet eyes and go, you know what, can we just not kill each other is that all right yeah. <laughs> and to sort of make a good show of it and then sit down or something yeah and i think what what really supports that view is that the winning side of many of these battles suffered so few casualties even when the butcher's bill was vast for the losing side so it really does imply that the lives were lost in the rout mm. so the minute you start running away and your cohesion's lost as you well know Jason comes in on his horse and just starts hammering the the, the infantry running away, right? Because yeah. they're in ones and twos, they've thrown away their weapons, they've torn off their helmets, they can run faster. And you guys just come in and absolutely butch them. And I think that's, you know, we mentioned Towton. That's my suspicion is that that in the kind of decisive engagement, it's something else. It's not pure bloodshed. It could be weight of numbers. It could be the psychopath theory of war. It could be like there's about 15 or 20 blokes who are massively into it. Yes. And and they, you know, like Harry uh, Hotspur, yeah. they kill everyone. It's like Harry Hotspur at the Battle of Shrewsbury just goes on like an absolute rampage or Hardrada at Stamford Bridge. And if that is successful in sort of penetrating enemy shield wall and, and then then they kind of lose cohesion, then everyone just runs, they goes, right, screw this, we're running away. Mm. Or you obviously kill the enemy leader and ostentatiously they, they fall. You're like, right, well, I'm not dying for Goldbinson anymore because he's gone. So, so I wonder if it's like you know you've got your kind of psychopathic, you're kind of almost your Bronze Age heroes, who are really on quite a small scale, even though they're big armies. All the actions in one kind of tiny bit, mm. or whether there is you know, and I think things like outflank, you accidentally end up outflanking someone, or at Tewkesbury, there's that weird, completely accidental outflanking where they, where a very small number of uh, of Yorkist troops crash into the Lancastrian flank, which just panics everyone, I think, yeah. and they just yeah. all sort of run. And so I think it's probably that kind of thing. And, and having been in crowds in festivals and sporting occasions, you do get a sense that everyone's looking, you know, and I've been on a few political things which have turned physical, but you are looking at the very small group of people that are making the noise and the energy over there. And you get the impression that if it goes wrong, then you then you run, you know. So that's my impression of how it must go, but you know much well, better than Well, me. I was wondering whether that's the whole concept of the heroic archetype, which in fact is the yeah. psychopath. So, you know, go back all the way to the ancients and there were a whole bunch of ordinary people like us. Yeah. And then there were one or two absolute psychopaths like Achilles or Hector, who, you know, for one reason or another, probably were genuine psychopaths, um, princes or whatever. Sorry if I've insulted anybody, but, you know, that maybe they were the ones that were happy to do the slaughter and everybody else just sort of like backed away quietly and tried to get on with looking like extras in the background of a movie and sort of pretending to fight but sort of tacitly agreeing between them, a bit like the, the yeah. truce during the you know, First World War in the trenches at Christmas, everybody tacitly agreeing, right, right now we're just not going to kill each other, all right? You know, we'll let the psychopaths battle it out. And in fact, the sort of heroic archetype 
is all the psychopaths. <laughs> There's like tiny percentage of any army are the ones doing the actual damage. Yeah. And everybody else is, is trying not to be spotted by a psychopath on the other side or by anybody who might get them into trouble for not putting enough energy into that. And I sometimes look at old classic movies, you know, battle scenes, you know, sort of the, some of the sword and sandals stuff, Spartacus or whatever it might be. And if you look in the background, you can see people unconvincingly fighting each other. You know, they've obviously been doing it all day and they're both knackered and they're trying not to sort of be spotted by anybody or get into trouble for not fighting well enough. And I wonder whether if that movie fighting isn't actually quite similar. Yes, so to, interesting. To a real yeah. battle. With the vast yeah. bulk of people going, I have got nothing against you, mate. I'm really sorry, but I'm not going to kill you either. So just make a show of it, please. Well, I think you're completely right. And there's a really interesting whole field of scholarship at the moment, isn't there, about about people's unwillingness to kill people. And, you know, famously at the Battle of Gettysburg, they recovered rifles off the field of battle and, and many of them have been reloaded many, many times on the urgings of a sergeant and not discharged. So you just had like nine, you know, yeah. nine balls in them and... And we know that the proximity to the other human makes that it makes that impulse even greater. So it's it's easier to kill someone, as we know, with a drone strike that is, is from Las Vegas. And you kind of look at a video, grainy video of a Afghan compound and push the button and then go off and have a Starbucks. Now, for that drone operator to go into that compound and knife everybody there in the guts is a you know it's the same impact, it's the same effect, but it's very very different. So. I think that's the interesting thing about the Industrial Revolution, isn't it? That it made it easier to convince. It made it easier for people to kill people, mm. basically. Yeah. And, you know, nice lads in uh, Lancaster bombers flying up every night who, who wouldn't have thought about punching a German, let alone incinerating them and their family, mm. um, are, are responsible for the death of... And, and, of course, all sides did this in the 20th century. And then the ultimate, obviously, extension of that is that one day someone will push a button and obliterate an entire country, mm. uh, you know, or, or part of a continent yeah. um, through nuclear munitions. And that, I think, on a, on a medieval battlefield where you are staring into the eyes of people, you're right. You're going to be like, look, mate, we're both here because we've been told to be here. Mm. But the Aristos, the people with the leaders, the people who gained the most or sought to gain the most, you could see they might be bloody going for it in the middle there. Yeah. A nasty little, a really unpleasant little gang of 50 or 100 dudes just going after each other in the middle and everyone else kind of slightly watching them and see who gets the upper hand. But Because I do think one of the reasons, because I'm, I'm fascinated by the slow adoption of black powder weapons in the medieval period. I mean, they, they first sort of, the handguns sort of come in around the end, you know, 1380s, 1390s, but don't really get taken up until you know, 100, 150 years later. And I, one of the things I'm thinking about is they're grossly inaccurate, which makes them really random. And if you're nobility and you've got your really expensive horse and your really expensive armor, and the chances are only another posh guy with the expensive kit stands a chance of killing you. So you're broadly safe against the bulk of the warfare. Yet some oik with a hand cannon aims at somebody else and the bullet pings off in another direction and goes straight through your breastplate and kills you. I wonder whether the nobility went, you know what, that's not fair. I'm being killed by randomness, not by some other mighty knight who's taken me on. And um, same with crossbows as well. It seems to be this tendency to believe that warfare should be not exactly noble, but should be not random. And when you start introducing gunpowder weapons, artillery, bombing, these become more and more displaced from directed killing and they, they come at indirect killing as you said you know launching a drone strike is is a computer game i mean they even use computer game controllers or similar things to computer game controllers and it literally you've got layers of glass between you and the target and i kind of wonder whether people didn't adopt the gun because it was too random and just leveled the playing field too much and then you had to get down off your horse otherwise you're a target and then you had to not wear the posh kit because you're too much of a target. And then you actually started to direct the battle from 20 miles away via radio. There's a general trend there. The more in charge of the army you are, as, as armies became more industrialized, the less chance the senior people were actually involved in the direct combat. I'm certain that's right. I'm certain that's right. There's no honour in it. There's no honour in getting killed on the battlefield by a yucky little smoky weapon in the hands of a peasant is there no none whatsoever in fact it's arguably embarrassing the nobility would definitely not want to be killed by an embarrassing 
circumstance. You want to be killed heroically. Yeah. You want to be Richard III charging in, you know, taking out the banner bearer of, of Henry Tudor, the usurper, and, and failing heroically. You know, that, that's the sort of arguably one of the last grand gestures of the medieval period. And what a way to end a, a period with a, with, a, with a king losing his kingdom uh, on the battlefield in that fantastic way. And add to that his scoliosis and his physical impairment. You know, what an incredibly interesting person to have a go at doing that. But um, yes, I think we're nearly out of time, I'm afraid, you know. Well, I could talk about this all day, bud. So let's make sure we do it again definitely. With a, uh, in person with a drink in hand. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Was there anything you wanted to kind of promote or sort of mention to the audience? Just normally history hit, which is great. I'm yeah. a subscriber. Oh, it's, well, it's so kind of you, man. Thank you for your support from the beginning. Yeah. But yeah, no, his, history hit TV is really exciting. We make, you know, proper historical documentaries. We're trying to get better all the time, more ambition all the time for true history fans. And then they all podcast, well, history hit podcast. Fabulous. Brilliant, Dan. Well, that, that's been a pleasure. And we could, we could literally have talked for another few hours, but I'm aware that you're quite busy. I don't know how you do so much. I genuinely don't. Well, I, come on, dude. You're running a bloody great big massive multi-trillion dollar business empire as well as doing all the stuff you do. So I won't take that from you, man. <laughs> Thank you for saying so. Brilliant. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.